Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, and by our artist of the show. This episode includes an interview with painter, activist, and film and video game effects artist Bill Stoneham, as well as the nuclear war cautionary commentary The Doomsday Machine, and a Snap Sessions tribute to satirist Stan Freeberg. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash Snap Sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. No one likes us, I don't know why. We may not be perfect, but heaven knows we try. But all around, even our old friends put us down. Let's drop the big one and see what happens. The Doomsday Machine, or growing up with a mushroom cloud hanging over your head. We know from scientific observation that your planet has discovered a rudimentary kind of atomic energy. We also know that you're experimenting with rockets. Yes, that is true. So long as you were limited to fighting among yourselves with your primitive tanks and aircraft, we were unconcerned. But soon, one of your nations will apply atomic energy to spaceships. That will create a threat to the peace and security of other planets. That, of course, we cannot tolerate. What exactly is the nature of your mission, Mr. Klaatu? I came here to warn you that by threatening danger, your planet faces danger. Very grave danger. I grew up in the atomic age. And And the above dialogue is from the film The Day the Earth Stood Still. I first saw it when I was eight years old on NBC's Saturday Night at the Movies in the family room of our house in Walnut Creek, California. Klaatu the alien had come to Earth to warn us of our scarier tendencies in the age of atomic weapons. Apparently, our closest neighbors in the Milky Way wanted to make sure we kept things under control. Given what they'd noticed up till then, they had good reason. We are human beings, and we make a lot of mistakes. Oopsie fucking daisy. And by 1945, we had indeed opened a nuclear Pandora's box and unleashed the power of the atom. By 1952, we had increased that power exponentially with the development of the hydrogen bomb, the first of the thermonuclear weapons. To ignite a hydrogen bomb, you use an atomic bomb as a trigger. The result is a weapon that has powers that would eventually be hundreds and even thousands of times stronger than those bombs dropped on Hiroshima. We are now capable of ending life on this planet. In 1964, two great and very scary films came out, Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove, both films that looked at the problems inherent in human error in the atomic age. In Failsafe, a group of bombers accidentally receives orders to proceed past their failsafe point. According to Daniel Ellsberg's The Doomsday Machine, failsafe means that strategic bombers would proceed to a certain point and hold, thus making sure there could only be a small chance of a mistake. Ellsberg tells us, If there were a failure from the base to transmit an intended signal either to go ahead or to return, the planes were to act as if they had gotten a return signal. 
This response might be an error if there was actually a war on and communications were destroyed, but it was a safer error, less dangerous, than the mistake of going to target when no war was going on and communications were out for technical or communications reasons. In the film Failsafe, a combination of a false signal and a new Soviet jamming technique led to an entire wing of an American nuclear strike force wrongly heading into the Soviet Union. Trained to ignore any attempts to talk them out of proceeding to their targets, the pilots ignored transmissions from the President, Henry Fonda, and even their terrified wives. In spite of the Americans joining forces to defend the Soviets, due to exceptional flying and a good amount of luck, one plane makes it through, leading to this brinksmanship-filled scene with President Henry Fonda talking to the Soviet Premier as his Moscow-based ambassador waits for the bomb to drop. What do we do, Mr. Chairman? What do we say to the dead? I think if we are men, we must say that this will not happen again. But do you think it possible? It all stands between us. We put it there, Mr. Chairman, and we're not helpless. What we put between us, we can remove. Mr. President. Yes, Jay. I can hear the sound of explosions from the Northeast. The sky is very bright. All in us. Brutally compelling nuclear cinema. The same was true of the less somber but equally gripping and angst-filled black comedy Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb A moving <laughs> picture. Strangelove is funny and acerbic from beginning to end with outstanding performances by Peter Sellers who plays three characters George C. Scott Sterling Hayden, Slim Pickens, and a very young James Earl Jones. In this film, a nuclear bomber is purposefully sent into the Soviet Union by a deranged right-wing nut of an Air Force officer, General Jack D. Ripper. Major King Kong reads the adjusted orders in his B-52 cockpit in this scene from the film. Primary target the ICBM complex at Laputa. Target reference, Yankee Golf Tango. 30 megatons, 20 megatons. Let's get our heads around these terms. The Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs were both around 20 kilotons, also known as 20,000 tons of TNT. There are 1,000 kilotons in a megaton. And these bombs are 30 and 20 times as much as one megaton. One of these bombs would destroy most of the San Francisco Bay Area, or flatten Manhattan, or turn Houston into a pile of radioactive petrochemical waste. These films scared the holy shit out of me. When they came out, I was around 11 years old, maybe just going into the sixth grade, and quite worried about nuclear war. Yes, we were going about our business, mowing lawns, playing baseball after school, and hopeful about our future. And meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., the President, the National Security Council, and the Strategic Air Command were planning a future based on mutually assured destruction.
Salzburg's incredibly compelling book, The Doomsday Machine, he narrates the story of his early days in the Rand Corporation and the Pentagon as a defense analyst. Ellsberg's specialty was nuclear war planning. In this capacity, in 1961, he came across a memo from President Kennedy to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. If your plans for general nuclear war are carried out as planned, how many people will be killed in the Soviet Union and China? The total death total is calculated by the Joint Chiefs from a U.S. first strike aimed at the Soviet Union, its Warsaw Pact satellites, and China would be roughly 600 million dead. A hundred holocausts. Those are Ellsberg's words, but the terror is something I share. And the Joint Chiefs estimate is actually kind of low. And the word he settles on to describe it is omnicide, the killing and willful destruction of all life on Earth. Ellsberg points out that during the 2016 presidential campaign, Donald J. Trump was reported to have asked a foreign policy advisor about nuclear weapons, if we have them, why don't we use them? The answer to this idiot, (laughs) who obviously was not paying attention in his Cold War era social studies classes is, we can never use them. It will be the end of us. It will be doomsday and the end of life on Earth. Human beings are brilliant. They can invent things like cell phones, Cuisinarts, and duct tape. What you really need is a secret weapon, duct tape. But they can also invent thermonuclear weapons. In the end, our penchant for making mistakes means there is no such thing as fail-safe. There is no such thing as being able to control our power. We have been lucky so far, but we are playing with fire. That's hot. When Ellsberg was talking to various officers on the Pacific Front during his time as a Pentagon consultant, he studied command decisions and the president's supposed powers to control nuclear decision-making. He spoke to a commanding officer at Kadena Air Base in South Korea in 1963. Listen to the following exchange. I asked if there were any circumstances in which he would send his planes on alert into the air. For example, if he thought they were about to be attacked. The major said, well, you know when I'm supposed to do it, don't you? I said, yes, only when I get an order from Japan or Osan. That's right. But let me tell you, I'm the commander of this base, and every commander has the inherent right to protect his forces. That is a fundamental law of war. It's the oldest principle of war that as a military commander, I have the right and authority to protect my forces. And if I believed they were endangered by anything, I would send them off. If they didn't get any execute message, oh, I think they'd come back. Most of them. Most of them. Almost all the time. But things fall apart. People make mistakes, and sometimes people are willfully disobedient, and sometimes presidents are short-sightedly elected by people who don't care about the rest of the world. As the biggest nuclear power on Earth, as one of the two countries most likely to be confronted by a fail-safe situation, we are obligated to know about these realities. We have been able to destroy our planet many times over since about 1960. Ellsberg quotes a man named John H. Rubel, who was a participant at a planning meeting for the Strategic Air Command in December 1960. At that meeting, he found out that SAC planned to obliterate not only the Soviet Union, but also communist China if nuclear war were to break out. Listen to his reflection. A voice out of the gloom from somewhere behind me interrupted, saying, May I ask a question? General Power turned again in his front row seat, stared into the darkness, and said, Yeah, what is it? 
in a tone not likely to encourage the timid. <coughs> what if it isn't China's war? The voice asked. What if it is just a war with the Soviets? Can you change the plan? Well, yeah, said General Power resignedly. We can, but I hope nobody thinks of it because it would really screw up the plan. That exchange did it. Already depressed by the briefings up to that point, I shrank within, horrified. I thought of the Wannsee Conference in January 1942, when an assemblage of German bureaucrats swiftly agreed on a program to exterminate every last Jew they could find anywhere in Europe. I felt as if I were witnessing a comparable descent into the deep art of darkness, a twilight underworld, governed by disciplined, meticulous, and energetically mindless groupthink aimed at wiping out half the people living on nearly one-third of the Earth's surface. The Kennedy administration came to power a month later. They were peopled with academics from Harvard and various hotshot Ivy League universities. They managed to back us down from nuclear conflict during the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962. Kennedy sensed that it would be difficult to guarantee things wouldn't get out of control. Apparently, he avoided asking, why don't we use them? In Dr. Strangelove, the world is faced by the awesome Soviet invention of the doomsday machine, whereby if the Russians were attacked by nuclear weapons and their command structure was decapitated, there would be an automatic thermonuclear response. It seemed fanciful in 1964, but as Ellsberg points out in his book, it was and is a reality. Uh-oh! If ICBMs or bombers do not hit their targets, there would be a series of Trident submarines who could launch 24 silos with a MIRV missile each loaded with 10 warheads, 240 possible cities to be hit. Doomsday guaranteed. As Ellsberg says, its effects, once triggered would rain down unending destruction. Sorry to scare you all, but we have an obligation to back ourselves down from the brink, to eliminate the possibility of omnicide and nuclear holocaust. Climate change is scary enough. In the past two and a half years, people who care may have noticed that nuclear limitation treaties negotiated during the Cold War have been falling by the wayside one by one. As Ellsberg reminds us, Friedrich Nietzsche once said, Madness in individuals is something rare, but in groups, parties, nations, and epochs, it is the rule. There are many reasons to bounce our present president out of office, but knowing Trump is in charge of the big red button may be the biggest reason of all. We'll meet again.
John? Uh, Marcia. I suppose I was eight years old and lounging one evening at a Shakey's Pizza Parlor in Pleasant Hill, California, when I heard this for the first time. It drove me nuts, but the adults were laughing. I wondered who did this nut-driving routine and why. Well, it turned out it was Stan Freeberg, and he was doing the voices of both John and Marcia. This flabbergasted this eight-year-old. John? Stan Freeberg was a very popular satirist and parodist from the 1950s and 60s, although his career actually began right out of high school in the 1940s. He was born in Pasadena in 1926, and shortly after graduating from Alhambra High School, Freeberg took a bus west by southwest and asked the driver to let him off when they reached Hollywood. In his autobiography, It Only Hurts When I Laugh, Freeberg says he then found a sign that said Talent Agency and walked right in. He got an audition with Warner Brothers and miraculously, he was promptly hired. Soon he was working in Looney Tunes cartoons with voiceover giant Mel Blanc. What's up, Doc? What an auspicious beginning for a career in showbiz. Freeberg was one of the first talents signed by Capitol Records when it launched its spoken word division in the early 1950s. He quickly began satirizing popular radio and TV shows, including Dragnet, which was the law and order of its era. On his Dragnet parodies, Freeberg began working with cartoon voiceover talents Dawes Butler and June Foray, with whom he would work for many years. Let's take a listen to a few selections from St. George and the Dragonette, so you can tune into the Freeberg style. The legend you are about to hear is true. Only the needle should be changed to protect the record. This is the countryside. My name is St. George. I'm a knight. Saturday, July 10th, 8.05 p.m. I was working out of the castle on the night watch when a call came in from the chief. A dragon had been devouring maidens. Homicide. My job. Slam. Hey, I'm the fire-breathing dragon. You must be St. George, right? Yes, sir. I see you got one of them new 45 caliber swords. That's about the size of it. <laughs> you slay me. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. What do you mean? I'm taking it in a 502. You figure it out. What's the charge? Devouring maidens out of season. Out of season? You never pinned that rap on me? Do you hear me, cop? Yeah, I hear you. I got you in a 412, too. A 412? What's a 412? Overacting. Let's go. On September the 5th, the dragon was tried and convicted. His fire was put out and his maiden devouring license revoked. Maiden devouring out of season is punishable by a term of not less than 50 or more than 300 years. Freeberg rose to the challenge of 1950s popular music, ridiculing everyone from Elvis Presley to Mitch Miller to Harry Belafonte, many of whom took umbrage at his smart-alecky irreverence. Let's listen to Freeberg's version of Heartbreak Hotel, where the echo effect gradually goes out of control and Elvis eventually rips his blue jeans. 
jazz. It's crowded, you still can find some room For broken-hearted lovers to cry there in the gloom And let you so lovely back, 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 back And let you so, that's too much echo Heartbreak be so lonely, they can hear keep flowing You'll be so lovely back, back, That's too much, turn me off Calypso music became popular in the late 1950s thanks to the lovely voice of Harry Belafonte and the popularity of his hit Deo, which Freeberg had a blast with. In Freeberg's ditty, the lead singer is forced to run down the hall and close the door after himself to muffle the sound of his Deos because the beatnik drummer complains it's too shrill. Hey, beautiful bunch of ripe banana. The deadly black tarantula. Daylight oh man, don't sing about spiders. I mean, ooh, well, like I don't dig spiders. Well, that's that's how the song goes. She goes, hide the deadly black tarantula. Daylight come and they won't go home. Is that it? Can I leave now? Oh, not yet. We got a big finish. Yeah, man. I locked myself out. Crazy. I come through the window. Daylight come and we won't go home. Wow. I overcame my John and Marcia aversion and became a big fan of Freeberg through all these songs. I loved Yellow Rose of Texas, where the jazzy snare drummer goes wacko and covers up the tra-la-las. She's the sweetest little rosebud that takes us out Why do you do that? Why do you burst out like that? That irritates me. That irritates me. That irritates me. That's all. But the yellow rose of Texas. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. You smart aleck Yankee drummer, you. You can cover up yelling. You can cover up rose, buddy, buddy, but don't you cover up Texas. Or I'll stick your head through that cotton pick and snare drum and secede from the band. So help me, Mitch Miller, I will. And the yellow rose of Texas will be mine forevermore. Cut it off there. The record's over. You idiot. Stop it. Stop it. I'll say. Just stop it now. Stop it. I'm getting out of here. He ruined the ending. One of the loveliest parts in the whole... Peace. Lawrence Welk was an immediate hit with his Lawrence Welk show in the early 1950s. This show ran on network television into the 1970s and then on syndication into the 1990s. Perhaps the single greatest appreciation of the polka culture of the Midwest, Welk's show was immensely popular with my German grandparents and we were regular watchers. Freeberg had a fabulous time with Welk's patented Wonderful, wonderful greeting, and his famed champagne bubble machine. In Freeberg's version, the orchestra is overwhelmed by the malfunctioning bubble machine, and the ballroom floats out to sea. Help! Help! Wonderful, wonderful! Turn off the bubble machine! Help! 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 
Freeberg also delved into salient political issues of the 1950s, mocking Cold War brinksmanship in his public relations battle between El Sodom and Rancho Gomorra, two casinos in Los Foraces, Spanish for the greedy ones. The satire ends with the fiery tourist attraction, the hydrogen bomb. Some of Stan Freeberg's greatest and most acerbic digs were in his wonderfully irreverent TV and radio commercials. From early on, Freeberg did all kinds of commercials. From frozen foods, now coming citywide in a frozen food section near you, to lawnmowers, faster than sheep, to Sunsweet's pitted prunes. Let's listen to a few highlights. I warn you in advance, I'm not going to like your prune. I see. And why do you say that? I say that for a very simple reason. I don't like prunes. Mm -hmm. And why? For one thing, prunes are wrinkled, and I don't like wrinkled fruit. You don't? No, I don't like wrinkled fruit at all. And then there's the matter of the pits. Disgusting. Yes. Well, what do you do with a prune pit once it's in your mouth? There's no way of getting rid of a prune pit gracefully. I agree. That's why Sunsweet has developed this brand new pitted prune. You see? No pits. What do you mean, no pits? I mean no pits. Go ahead, try one. Oh, well, yes. May as well get it over. No pits. No pits. How do they do that? They do it. Well, they're very sweet and moist. Yes. Has Sunsweet managed to change your mind with their brand new pitted prune? Possibly. They're still rather badly wrinkled, you know. Today, the pits. Tomorrow, the wrinkles. Sunsweet marches on. He knows the frozen pizza with the crisp and tasty crust you can trust. Gino speaks with forked tongue. No, no, trust me. But Gino's pizza is brave, loyal, honest. Okay, hold it. No good. Wait a no, minute. I'm sorry. Gino's is telling the truth. I know, but the whole thing's just a little pushy. But how will people know if it is the crisp and tasty crust you can trust? What? Well, they won't unless they pick up a Gino's frozen pizza at the supermarket. You think know. they will? Beats me. For a guy who wrote and directed such excellent commercials, Freeberg was extremely dubious about the advertising industry, which he skewered in one of the first great attacks on the commercialization of Christmas, Green Christmas, which came out in 1958. Let's listen to the intro, where we meet today's Scrooge and Cratchit, and then cut to Freeberg's fabulous medley of commercialized Christmas tunes as he takes us to the end. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Mr. Scrooge. Good morning, Mr. Scrooge. Good morning, Mr. Scrooge. Morning, Mr. Scrooge. Bah, humbug everybody. Good morning, Mr. Scrooge. Well, the meeting will come to order if you please. Are all the advertising people represented here? Everyone except Amalgamated well, if they're not here for the Christmas pitch, I can't help them find new ways of tying their product into Christmas. That's why I'm chairman of this board. Uh, let's hear it for me. Here, here, here. All right, Abercrombie, what are your people up to? Oh, same thing as every year. 50,000 billboards showing Santa Claus pausing to refresh himself with our product. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the public has come to expect that. That's and, uh, right. It's become tradition. Fine, fine. Uh, you there, crass. Uh, I suppose your company's running the usual magazine ad showing cartons of your cigarettes peeking out of the top of Santa's sack. Uh, better than that. This year we have him smoking one. Mm -hmm. Yes. It got Santa a little more rugged, too. Both sleeves rolled up and a tattoo on each arm. One of them says, Merry Christmas. Well, what does the other one say? Less tars. Great stuff. Uh, but Mr. Scrooge... Well, who are you? Bob Cratchit, sir. I've got a little spice company over in East Orange, New Jersey. Uh, do I have to tie my product into Christmas? 
What do you mean? Well, I was just going to send cards out showing the three wise men following the star of Bethlehem. I get it. And they're bearing your spices. No, that's perfect. No, no, uh, no. No product in it. I was just going to say, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Period. Well, that's a peculiar well, slogan. Old hat, Cratchit. That went out with button shoes. You're a businessman? Christmas is something to take advantage of. A red and green bandwagon to jump on. A sentimental shot in the arm for sales. Listen. Deck the halls with advertising. Fa la 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 la. Dashing through the snow in a 50 foot coupe. O'er the fields we go, sailing all the way. Deck the halls with advertising. What's the use of compromising? Fa la 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 la. From the beginning, Stan Freeberg was his own man, a classic outside-the-box thinker, well before anyone was talking about boxes. He refused tobacco and alcohol advertisers for his 1957-58 show and mocked all sorts of mainstream powers that were. He teased all the hit makers of his time and remained a wonderful parodist and satirist till the end of his career, which lasted 70 years right up to his death in 2015. Let's take it out with Freeberg's version of the classic Edith Piaf hit, Say Si Bon. It's so good I may kill myself. Motorcycle with wire wheels. Mink sweatshirts. Monogrammed. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. The following interview was one of the first we recorded during the COVID-19 crisis, so you may notice a difference in the sound quality compared to previous interviews. And now, Snap Sessions interview of artist, activist, and film and video game effects designer Bill Stoneham. This is Snap Sessions' Doug Nunn, and I'm with visual artist and special effects artist and all-around good guy, Bill Stoneham. Bill's been an artist pretty much all his life. Welcome, Bill Stoneham. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, you know, um, I've known you for years. I think I first met you back in about 81 or 82 in Mendocino. You had met Pamela, and she introduced us. And I found out quickly what a great artist you are and what a fun guy you are. And I thought, what's he doing here? Just kidding. <laughs> uh, 
I was just thinking about this this morning. I came up to Mendocino in 1971, and because uh, my first wife owned, her father owned a house on Smuggler's Cove there. So we, we would come up to that place and vacation there. And my very first gallery, public gallery that I ever hung in was Gallery West at the end of the street there. I'll be darned. So and I hung like three or four pieces in there. And I had to come and get them when I signed up with Charles Feingarten because he insisted that he owned everything I had. When I came back up to Mendocino to buy the paintings back from the gallery, they bought them from me. They wouldn't part with them, so... A classic. First experience of Mendocino. I see. This is one of those things that's well before we even met. And I, as far as I'm concerned, nothing happened before we met. So there's that. Well, so. of course not. Geez. Yes. <laughs> you, are, you are really a lifelong artist. You're called a surrealistic artist. But, you know, in a lot of ways, you've just always been a creative kind of person. Tell us about when you first got interested in drawing and painting. What were your, some of your first memories about making art, Bill? Well, like you said, I was always doing something creative. Later it became painting, but it started out with clay. It started out with just, you know, taking toys and smashing them up and reconstructing them in, in other, th other ways. You know, my pre-ILM uh, moment. My parents used to be pretty regular churchgoers, and we would go to the Presbyterian Church in North Hollywood. And I'm sorry, but the minister was hideously boring, and, and so I, I would, uh, my mom would give me a pad of paper and a pencil, and she would let me doodle, and boy, did I doodle. I mean, I would just doodle away there, you know, just completely ignoring him and his droning on about his imaginary friends when I could draw anything in, with my imagination right there. Yeah, that's great. So, did you actually draw any religious kind of stuff at that point? No, it was mostly Japanese aircraft bombing things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did a lot of that in fifth grade. In fact, my, my fifth grade, uh, whenever yeah. I got caught, there was battleships uh, blasting at each yes. other. Yes. yes, and the teachers in school used to send my mother notes saying, please... Try and get Billy to stop drawing on his work. Because I would draw it all the way around the, the borders, right? And then usually it would creep from the borders onto the work. It was just, you know, that's how I passed my time. I was an only child, so I had to do a lot with my imagination. You grew up mostly in L.A. then? You mentioned that you had been born yeah. back in Massachusetts. Yeah, I was born in Massachusetts. And I was adopted uh, when I was uh, nine months old by my adopted parents of the Stoneham family, and we moved from Massachusetts to Gary, Indiana, and Hobart, and then eventually with my grandmother in Chicago and her apartment, and that's where I did a now infamous painting. I didn't do it there, but I did it from the image of that place. You want to might as well tell us a little bit about that infamous painting. I know this was the subject of a recent podcast all by itself. Yeah, actually a couple of different podcasts, and it's also being made into a documentary film, and it's being made into a horror movie. Wow. <laughs> yeah, there's two different creators working on that. One is a, is a writer who is doing the horror film, and he's got backing for the movie. And then another one is a documentary filmmaker who uh, has been filming me on and off and talking to me on and off for the last 10 years. Now, this painting is called The Hands Resist Him, correct? Right. Tell us a little bit about The Hands Resist Him. So the quick overview is I painted it in 1972, and I used an old photo from my family album of me at five years old standing in front of the the entranceway to my grandmother's apartment in Chicago. And I was standing there with a uh, little girl from the neighborhood, 
And so it's an image of the two of us, five, five-year-old and four-year-old, whatever, and this entranceway. And that's it. But the lighting was such that it just struck me right away as being, there was something sinister about it. I mean, I saw sinister things everywhere anyway, so this was, this was perfect. So I did the painting and turned the girl into a doll. So she's holding a dry cell battery in her hands, and she has no eyes, and her arms are, you, know, you can see the seam where it's articulated. Then myself, you know, my, hip, my eyes are pretty much in shadow, so I'm kind of looking sinister, five-year-old sinister. And then behind the panes of glass are these disembodied hands. And it's like they're in different positions, they're tapping on the glass. The uh, title came from my first wife's poem that she had written about me, but it's just the, the title of it, The Hands Resistant, was just perfect. So that was the title for the painting, and the painting went into Feingarten's collection and was shown in 1974 in my first one-man show in L.A., What's his name? It's it a was, famous uh, actor who bought it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Or a semi-famous actor. Right. Yeah, John Marley, the actor who played the producer in the first Godfather movie and woke up with the bloody horse's head. Right, right. yeah. This is the guy who bought the painting. And I, and I was in the gallery at the opening, so I'm there with, with my wife, and we're walking around watching people look at the paintings. And I noticed him looking at it. Sometime afterward, I discovered that that was the only painting that sold in the show. And that was it. I never heard about the painting or anything else about the painting for many years until 2000 and 2001. I got an email and the email heading said, do you know the hands resistance? And that's all it said. <laughs> I know. So you get the scary door image behind your head. So I answered the email. Yes, I know. I know. It's the title of the painting and, uh, that I did in 1972. And um, I get an email back with a link to the eBay auction page for the painting. And the first thing that happens is when the page opens is the face of, of my five-year-old character in the painting fills the screen and it's scrolling up the screen in front of me. That's <laughs> 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 more of that creepy sensation but in the auction page ad was was great i mean these guys really were into it they say claimed the painting was haunted they said that they had hung it in their kids bedroom which to me was a bad idea to begin with and the kids complained that the figures would come out of the canvas at night and fight with each other oh man yeah so they were very freaked out by the whole thing and they wanted to get rid of it and they wanted uh, instructions on on how to get an exorcism for their, for their house <laughs> <laughs> They had warnings, you know, about anybody who was psychically sensitive or whatever would probably not want to own this painting, you know. They'd gotten quite a buzz. You know, this is 2001, so the internet is not quite as predominant as it is now, but it was enough so that it built up pretty quickly into an item, you know, and it was claimed to be haunted and it would cause people to freak out and, and feel faint and, you know, the usual and have vapors or whatever. And, and um, <laughs> I just took my laudanum and looked at that painting, and I did not know what I would do. Gracie, did you see this thing? Goddamn, what's it doing? <laughs> <laughs> so I had a, I had all kinds of stuff from this, Doug. I mean, I had people emailing me and asking me, and I finally I had a Texas uh, radio show do an interview. She interviewed me, and she had a contest for someone to write in uh, in a, a thousand words something about the painting, and if they were chosen as the, as the winning story, 
they would get an exact replica of the painting, a, a glissé, a print on canvas. So there were 85 entries. So I read all 85 of these. It didn't give me a very high opinion of Texas, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's some deep issues there, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently you're into drinking and child abuse. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? <laughs> but the winning, the story I picked was written by a young woman. She was probably 17, 18 years old. And it was from the painting's point of view. And it was, it was really nice. Nicely conceived, nicely written. Uh, didn't contain a lot of drunken abuse or, you know, any of that stuff. That, she was the winner. As far as I, I was concerned, so she got it, got the painting, and, and everything was hunky dory. But it was it was interesting the the responses that came out over this. Does she still have the painting? The uh, print, yeah, I'm sure she does. Who has the painting now? Ah, the original painting is owned by Kim Smith at Perception Gallery in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'll be darned. He was the winning bidder on the eBay auction, so he owns the painting. Actually, he's one of my collectors now. I mean, he collects quite a bit of my work, so. He's one of my patrons, and he's gotten six-figure offers for the painting and has, you know, refused to sell it, which is okay, because what it does is it just makes it more valuable, and I get people, I have over the years, I've done, let's see, one, two, three different versions of the painting, like sequels and even a prequel to the painting. The feet resist him. The feet resist him. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this this is part of the Stoneham mythos, is that, that this is one of the paintings, but we know all the other stuff that you have done in your life, including you've worked with ILM, which we'll get to soon enough, but when you, we'll just go back a little bit in the earlier part, when you were first deciding, oh, I want to do paintings, you were also a dramatic kid. You went to North Hollywood High School, and I think you were yeah. with Michael Richards back then, dominating the drama department. Michael well, Richards from... That was, Seinfeld. At, that was at Thousand Oaks. My mother remarried and we moved from, from North Hollywood to Thousand Oaks, which to me was like moving from Paris to Boise, or worse, or Paris to Lompoc. I don't know. I mean, it was just, it was such a cultural shock. And, but there you had a chance to hang out with him and you guys completely went nuts. Totally destroyed everything. I had a key to the local uh, theater. I was a, We were in the uh, community theater there. And so I, I had access to the brand new theater, which I had worked on helping construct. And we would set the sound stage up. We'd get the lights going. And he and I would go up there in costume and makeup and we would do improv. That's great. Improvised characters between each other. What an experience that must have been. It was great fun. So you were, at the time, going to community college. Yeah, it was Moorpark College, right. At the time, you were painting up a storm. You're trying to get started as an artist, but you're also being politically active. Tell us a little bit about your anti-war resistance. Yeah, that that started out in college. I mean, of course, I was concerned about it before then. I, I was all, my, my stepfather and, and my mother were very uh, liberal, and so we talked about these issues all the time. I mean, they were more traditional in the sense that they didn't think that necessarily protesting against the government was the best thing to do, but, you know, that was, that was their way, not mine. And I started out in high school I, as a test, if you will. My last year of school, I started a political party on campus, and I wanted to overthrow the, <laughs> the student government. Mostly because I thought they were a bunch of twits, you know. I mean, these were these were the, the classic Monty Python, rich kids marching around and falling over each other and electing quarterbacks for, for president. Right. 
Well, I wanted to run something more radical, but I, I did it in a clever way. What I did was I started the party and I, and I made speeches on, on campus, improv speeches. I had a rally in the gymnasium with a band, with a rock band, and I was running a candidate who was a surfer. And this kid was, he was gorgeous. So he was the poster boy, right? right? So I'm running him as my, as my candidate on my party ticket. And the student body government is all freaked out. So they run a campaign. And then the, the rest of the student body comes up with an independent party and they win. And that was the whole point. And you were also, you were actually a, a draft resistor as well. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that. Well, what happened was I was uh, radicalized by Joan Baez and David Harris. We got together up there in Casadero, up above the Russian River in, uh, God, when was that? That was in 67, 68. I had already refused once. I ended up refusing four times. And every time I would go down on the bus, and the first time I just, you know, set my draft notice back with a big red ink stamp on it that said resist. And I immediately got a letter back from them saying, you know, you're 1A delinquent, you know, you have to report immediately. So I went down there on the bus and I got down to the induction center in LA and went in and went through the process. You know, there's all these different stages of the induction process and there's a general orientation. So you have all these guys from all over, you know, wherever in California in this room, sitting in folding chairs, listening to this military guy, tell them what, you know, what they're to expect in this induction before they go off and get their brains blown out or kill a bunch of innocent people somewhere. So I stood up in the middle of this and I said, I'm going to resist today. And I said, all of you can do the same. And then I went through the process. And when it finally came to the end where the uh, colonel asks you to take one step forward for the United States of America, I simply did not take one step forward. And so I was ushered into his office where he had a display of, you know, hand grenades and all kinds of cool stuff on his, on his desk. You know, shit that I wanted to play with right then, but <laughs> that wasn't the point of this meeting. So, <laughs> so he asked me. He says, I'm going to ask, he says, he first informs me, he says, I'm going to ask you three times. And on the third refusal, I will then inform you that you are free to go, but you are to expect a visit from the FBI and so forth, etc., etc., uh -huh. And that you will face, more than likely face prosecution. And so we went through the routine and he asked me three times and I refused. And then I went back to my life. I was probably doing this for about two years before I finally get a call from my cousin in San Rafael, because I was out to San Rafael site, to call my mother, because my mother had called and said that the FBI had come with a warrant for my arrest to the house. My mother was all excited, you know, and she said, she said, this guy came up to the door and he said, you know, well, I'm a good Christian too. That was the, one of the things he told me. You know, it's like my son was refusing for conscientious reasons, and this FBI agent says, well, I'm a good Christian too, blah, 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 and we have a warrant for your son's arrest. And my mother was so outraged by this comment that she just wouldn't tell him anything. After talking to her, I called the FBI office in San Francisco and I said, here's where I am. Come and get me. You know, I'm turning myself in. And so he comes over, they pick me up, drives me across the Golden Gate Bridge and to the uh, U.S. commissioner's office. And he was out to lunch, so I had to spend a half an hour with an Afghan hash smuggler in a holding cell. Now, this was fine with me. And the Afghani hash smuggler looked at me and he said, Brother, you know, I mean, I'm dressed, Doug, I'm dressed in coveralls, barefoot, no shirt, beads, and my hair down to my shoulders, and a full beard. 
So anyway, um, after about a half an hour of this, they took me into the main office and fingerprinted me and photographed me. And I wish I had those mug shots, man, because I was looking good. I mean, <laughs> then we go into the commissioner's office, you know, his courtroom, and he, uh, you know, sets a date for arraignment, which is all that was, was just to have him set an arraignment date. And then we were done, and the FBI guy drives me back to my cousin's in San Rafael. And on the way back, he's going, God damn, I wish I had time to take you out to lunch. He said, you're the first guy in 25 years of working for the FBI that ever turned himself into me. So here you are, you're resisting the draft, but you're also getting paintings out. And uh, you mentioned that you had been picked up by a guy, the Charles Feingarten Gallery in SoCal. So tell us about your first work as a professional artist, your attempt to get out there. So I, I get back to LA and I've got some pretty decent four by five prints of my work and I have them mounted very nicely in a little matte frames for each one and in a portfolio. And I, so I walked down Melrose and La Cienega and Beverly Hills looking at galleries. And what I did was I looked at the galleries and I would look in the windows, the display windows, and if they had anything that was remotely surreal, then I would go in, right? Well, there weren't that many of those, but there was Charles Feingarten Gallery. And in his window, he had an artist named Charles Brown who did a lot of Magritte-like paintings. Okay. So you had, you had objects isolated in a juxtaposition that wasn't real. You know, an oversized egg sitting on a chair and things like that, weird things. A chicken driving a bicycle, something like that. That would be extreme for Charlie Brown, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. So with Rembrandt lighting, so I would, uh, I, I thought, well, this looks like a possibility. So I walked in, and uh, Charles Feingarten himself was not there at the time; he was in Europe. So I showed the portfolio I had to his director, this uh, woman named Carla, and she picked out five images out of the out of the portfolio, and she said, "I want to show these to Charles when he gets back." And is that all right if you leave him here? And I, and, I, and I said, sure, sure, sure. So I went and got back in my pickup truck and went back to my $84 a month Quonset hut, the top of a truck stop, and uh, went back to painting and forgot completely about Charles Feingarten and my trip to look at galleries. But I got a, a telegram from him saying, do not show your work to anyone else. I am coming up to see you and... Sure enough, he drove up, uh, you know, a few days later in his Mercedes and blasted into our dirt driveway and came into the into the house, into the Quonset hut, and looked at the paintings I had and uh, bought seven paintings right off. Man, that's kind of cool. I mean, did you feel like, like I'm going someplace now? No, I felt cheated, but we'll get to that <laughs> later. <laughs> Yeah, I felt a little exploited, but well, well, well you know, that's me. And, and anyway, um, so, so for I, for much of the seventies, then were were you painting and holding down day jobs, or how is that at this point in your life? Well, after after the draft issues, I mean, I, I finally went to court, you mm -hmm. know, and I was given. Uh, they were sentenced me to three years in prison. But the um, president of the college in Moore Park College wrote a letter to the judge saying that's a crime. You know, he's, he wrote the letter and he said it would be criminal to send him to prison. And so the judge took that as a recommendation and the um, probation, so I was given three years probation, which meant I had to report to a probation officer and I was to work for a nonprofit. You know, part of the probation was to do community service type of work. So I went to the local state hospital in Camarillo, the hill from Thousand Oaks, and uh, worked in the children's department there teaching art. 
Great. But, but I wasn't getting paid for this. Okay, not so, so great. Not, not so great. I was not making a living mm-hmm. as such. But, the, you know, Quonset was only $84 a month. You know, and groceries weren't too bad. And gas was, I think, about 40 cents back then. I did, I did this for quite a while. And then the college wanted me to do a mural, a wall in the tech building stairwell. And so they wrote to the, to the Selective Service Board, you know, if Michelangelo can paint for the church, then certainly Bill Stoneham can paint for this college. And I like bought. the reasoning. I like the yeah, reasoning. Yeah, the reasoning yeah. was excellent. Mm-hmm. So they bought, and the Selective Service Board bought it, said, we'll do this. And the, the judge could not approve or disapprove, because if he did, that would set a precedent. So they, he left it to the Selective Service Board, and the board said, sure. So that meant I was earning $2.75 an hour. Oh, there you go. Well, those are 70s wages. So basically, you were doing some nonprofit work, but you were also, you were painting as much as you could in that era. And, as much as I could. And so were, were you, at the time, were you making some money from your painting? Um, a little bit, yeah. I would occasionally sell a piece. I had a... Uh, <laughs> Actually, had a furniture store in Thousand Oaks that was showing showing some of my paintings, and they sold. Interestingly enough, the young guy in the furniture store, the salesman, he said, "Yeah, you know your stuff." He says, "Look, put a lot of weird stuff in there. People seem to like that. They want to buy that." By the time I was I went down La Cienega Boulevard, I was you know I had enough work in my pocket that I figured I could at least start with it. Feingarten signed me up for two years. He said, "You know, you paint two paintings a month." For this amount of money for two years and at the end of those two years we'll do a show and that's what we did that's great now when i met you it would probably be i guess say 81 82 and yeah. um you were up in mendocino and i had the good fortune at the time hit and run theater was doing a lot of sketch shows and somehow we managed to trick you into working with us a lot and i still have some of your props you know we never had any money so, for example, I remember a Soviet-style uh, quiz show where there was a... I asked you to write a clap or else sign for the uh, thing. And I still have that where you took clap or else and did it in pseudo-Cyrillic writing. It's beautiful. And it, typically for us, it's on a, a piece of, like, cheap plywood door frame or something. You also built a wonderful monster that was influential in over, uh, sort of abusing a rock band to make them play at extraordinary levels and stuff, which was called um, the Black Box, which we nicknamed Blackie. And you had to, it had to go through transformations from a small uh, little machine into an enormous thing. And you took it and you managed to make it. So you were doing these inspired works for next to no money. I wonder if you could comment on that era or about what it's like for an artist to work for like theater companies who don't have any money, etc. You can make as much fun of me as you want, Bill. <laughs> well, that was that was a particularly enjoyable piece. I mean, it was it was su- it was such a, a a hoot to construct something out of milk crates, basically. Because they were all similar in shape and size and configuration and make this... It actually was kind of a Lego monster in a way. It was. I do remember that the one review we got when we were playing out of the Victoria in San Francisco was a comment about my black box. You know, it was like, he liked that. Right. He didn't like anything else. But he liked that. (laughs) 
Yeah, and it, it was it was true. It was a monster. It had lights inside of it and so yeah. forth. It was like a it was kind of a robotic kind of uh, thing. Yeah, very much so. Really quite beautiful. And then it was it was in eighty four that Rosie was born. Well, eighty five. So at this time, strategically, you managed to get noticed by one of the special effects guys down in Marin County. His name's and Chris Wayless, right? Yeah, CWI. And now tell us a little bit about how you connected with. CWI. Well, I, I knew Chris from a previous encounter with him before uh, ever going up to Mendocino. I had an agent in San Francisco, and I needed a connection in San Francisco because I wanted to have some way to show my art, my paintings. So I had a connection with a fellow named Will Stone, and he had a collection down on Sutter Street, a gallery space down there. And he worked with collectors and publishers. One of the things he did was he hooked up with some director or writer, and he had a script for a science fiction concept called The Tourist, and it was about this holding hotel, like a tenement hotel in New York, that was full of aliens. And these aliens were trapped in New York because they hadn't been able to get back to their home worlds, whatever. And so they wanted concept art from us, and I was one of the people they wanted this concept art from. So I did this, you know, I did these concept pieces and because of the concept pieces in the script and the script had been taken to Chris to show him and I guess he was going to do some concept stuff, maybe even some little maquettes or whatever. But because of that encounter with him, which was probably, what would that be? That would be like 77, 78. I came back to him in, in 84 and he remembered me and I said, do you have any kind of work for, you know, an artist? And he said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, we're doing Enemy Mine. And what, what we do here is we sculpt castings off of the actor for the head, the arms, the feet, you know, whatever part of the body is going to be a monster, right? You do a casting of the actor's original, and then you, you put clay over that, modeling clay, and sculpt the creature form. And then you make another mold on top of that. And what you have then is you have the negative space in there, which is filled with what was called SRAM, and that was the um, latex foam. You heated that up in a pizza oven inside this mold, and then you carefully <laughs> it off and painted it and fit it onto the actor's body. And that became his prosthetic, what's called prosthetic makeup. And so that's what the, the basically that's what uh, CWI did in addition to animatronic work. In other words, they did creature stuff that was not on an actor, but in fact was on a robot that was controlled by RC or cabling or, you know, whatever. Sometimes a guy, you know, you know, puppeteering it. Anyway, so that's the kind of thing they did, and he hired me. And so I came down there, and I started making molds. I started doing some of the color stuff, some of the work on, this, on the skins, you know, that, that were going to go on to uh, the Drax, the bad guys in Enemy Mine, or I guess they were just the adversary. And Lou Gossett Jr. was one of the bad yeah, guys, Yeah, Lou Gossett right? Jr., exactly, and Dennis Quaid. So the Drax and some of the other creatures on that planet were our main job, was making those guys. So they needed the, the these guys to look a certain way on film, which meant you had to have a color scheme. And this the color scheme meant that everything was painted with this scheme. You know, there were no variations here. This is the one you used. And I, I developed, developed it in my first two weeks there. I mean, they've been working on this, I, you know, tossing different color ideas around for months and not getting anywhere. And I did this, I did this, this paint scheme for them. 
And Wolfgang Peterson saw it in a daily shot and said... Famous director it. Wolfgang Peterson. Yeah, yeah. And that was my introduction to ILM because they wanted me to come to the dailies showing of the pieces with the this color scheme I'd come up with. And Wolfgang, you know, picked it. He said that was the one we were going to use. So you ended up, you worked with Chris Wayless on Enemy Mine, got noticed by Peterson and the ILM bunch, and you end up getting picked up by um, Industrial Light and Magic, the George Lucas right. group. So right. what are some of the first projects you worked on with Lucas? Well, the first projects were the uh, Ewoks movie, Battle for Endor, with uh, Wilford Brimley. That was my first uh, gig with ILM, was doing that. And what I was doing was basically the same stuff I did at, at Chris's. I was sculpting pieces that would be used on animatronic or actors. There's a, there's a shot in the ILM archive of me working on this one hand, sculpting on this hand, and George Lucas and his, and his entourage standing there next to me. Oh, that's pretty cool. Looking over my shoulder, you know, I'd say, make it a little more like a dog. <laughs> now, you know, actually, I remember when you were working at ILM and you were at your computer station, I came to visit a couple times, yeah. and one of the things you told me was when you'd be at your station and Lucas would make a visitation, you guys would all start humming the imperial theme. Bom, bom, ba bom, bom, ba bom, bom, ba bom. Anyway... You worked for ILM for quite a while in a variety of ways. You worked on this movie and, you know, the Ewoks and building yeah. sculptures, but you also went into computer stuff where you developed backgrounds. I'll tell us a little bit about that. Now, that was later because okay. remember that we're talking about a pretty uh, historically a point in the creative tools available to artists here. So we went from analog. In other words, everything we did was by hand, including the special effects, because everything was done in camera. Right. So like that match shot I described to you, that's all in camera. And the effect was that you created an army that was a composite of the same group of people just rearranged and running at you from two different sides. There's no computers. This is analog. This is all done by hand. It's all done in camera. It's all, in other words, it's all film. There's no digital here. No, the first, the earliest digital stuff was done at um, at ILM's uh, Pixar division, and they did the. Remember that all of this was ILM. This was all part of Lucas Film Groups, uh, Pixar, all of these guys who are now separate entities, right? Right. But back then, they were all more or less together under the same the uh, Dark Overlord. <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, Lord Vader himself. Yeah, Lord Vader. Right. <laughs> I am your employee. Um, back when everything was analog, before digital layering was possible, in other words, before you could do everything in the computer, all the CG work, all the animation, all of that stuff, and the actors standing in front of a green screen, and all this stuff is what takes place behind him. Wilford Brimley, by the way, hated this shit. He absolutely hated it. He needed to have something up there in front of him to talk to, man. He said he hated those blue and green screens. You know, I ended up puppeteering because of that. But this match shot was wonderful. This is a match shot of a group of marauders. These are the bad guys in the Ewoks movie. And these are all basketball players. Giants. And, yeah, they're from the Lakers. They're, you know, some of them are pretty well known. And we dressed them up for this movie. They're supposed to be coming at us as an army, coming out, streaming out of their castle. Now, the castle was about the size of a uh, refrigerator box. It was just over the edge of a hill in front of where the camera was set up, so it looked like it was way off in the distance. 
and it looked like it was, um, you know, huge. But of course it wasn't. It was just the angle we were looking at it. it was, this is forced perspective. This is where you have a Death Star the size of a golf ball, and you have a Death Star the size of a medicine ball. You know, in other words, where you put these objects in relation to the camera tells you about distance, right? So here's this castle, and the guy's running at us. And what we did was we uh, hired for the day a bunch of uh, accountants from the accounting department at ILM and dressed them up in marauder outfits, gave them weapons, and, ha and had like a, a stone here and a stone there, like a white stone on the dirt. And they, we, they would be told, walk toward us or run toward us, but don't cross over where these stones are. So they're all coming at us from the right side, and we have the, we're rolling, camera's rolling, film is going, and then boom, stop, rewind, take the block that is in front of the lens, and it's cutting off the light from coming in on, on one half, and that was the half that didn't have any people, right? That goes over to the right side where we've already filmed a bunch of people, right? So when the camera's rewound and we shoot it again, this time we have them all coming down the left side. And we have them, you know, rearranged so that they don't look like the same bunch. And when the two are put together, you've got an army coming at you. That's fascinating. Well, that was that. That's what's known as analog. I mean, everything's done pre. This was all pre-digital work. We didn't get into digital until oh, probably the late, very late '80s. And uh, I think something for ILM anyway on the on the film side of it. Their first digital stuff was probably. Um, Young Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yeah, I remember that film. Yeah. The, uh, the uh, digital, what was it, stained glass window warrior. So the stained glass window guy comes to life and comes down and fights. That was digital. Well, you also worked on Howard the Duck and you worked on The Fly. Do you, what are some yeah. of the experiences you remember from those two classics? Well, Howard the Duck, unfortunately for me, was the movie that pushed me out the door from ILM. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Everybody hated that movie. <laughs> we would sit there in meetings and we'd go, what's that smell? And we'd go, oh, <laughs> it's the script. <laughs> this thing was such a dog. Nobody wanted to do it, but Gloria and Willard were friends of, of George's. They, they'd worked with him on, uh, I think, Temple of Doom or something. So they, you know, they kind of had an in with him, and they, they wanted to do this based on the Howard the Duck Marvel comic book character, right? Sure. Anyway, those guys, they went to him, his studio originally, his effects studio originally, Creature Shop, and he did a beautiful Howard the Duck. I mean, it looked like the cartoon character. They didn't like that. They wanted something that was more approachable. And so we're all going, okay, Gloria, what's approachable? What's your idea of an approachable-looking Howard the Duck character creature. And she said, well, you know, more like the way they did E.T. And we all looked at each other like, good guy, E.T. looked like dog shit. <laughs> I mean, it was his personality that won him over. Otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> So we end up with this Howard the Duck that doesn't look anything like the Marvel character. I mean, he looks like... Um, a little bit like one of the nephews in, in, in Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Right, sure. With a cigar. Guy. Yeah, with a cigar. Mm -hmm. So he ends up looking like that. And we were all, you know, everybody was just freaking out about this. And the reason was that this, this guy was in almost every shot. It's different when you've got a th something like E.T. where you only see him occasionally, right? And usually in shadow. And it's really more about the human kid than it is about E.T. This one, Howard the Duck's in every frame, pretty much. So you got to be convincing, right? 
Anyway, I worked on that for a while, and the very earliest concept for Howard that I did was based on Jack Nicholson. I said, you put a duckbill prosthetic on Jack Nicholson. That's Howard the Duck. <laughs> I can see that. That makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, they didn't go that way, obviously. So um, that's that, about that time, uh, Chris contacted me, and he said, hey, look, I want you to come over for dinner. This is Chris Wayless again. Chris Wayless. And mm -hmm. so I, he says, I got an interesting script here. And I come over to go over to his place, and we um, uh, here's oh, and I got to describe this. Above Chris's fireplace is the dragon from Dragon Slayer, because he was he worked on that. So this dragon head coming out of the wall above the fireplace. But he shows me this script for Cronenberg's The Fly, and I just went, oh my god! Yeah. I said, I have got to do this. I mean, I'm sorry, but Howard the Duck, no. <laughs> So I left, Doug, I left ILM to work on The Fly. I mean, it was the career decision at the time seemed irrelevant to me. You know, it was more a passion than anything else, which is a stupid way to, to run your life when you're trying to support a family. So, I mean, because Rosie's on the way. Rosie's your daughter who was born about 84, 85? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's coming in March of 85, and here I am making career decisions based on what I like. Based, you went with a bug. I did. I went with a bug instead of the duck. <laughs> <laughs> Let us remind everyone who got an Academy Award, not the duck. <laughs> so yeah, the the, the fly was this a really astonishing script. It was just really, really creepy, powerful stuff. I mean, Cronenberg nailed it. Yeah, it's a great movie. And uh, yeah, yeah, Goldblum and Gina Davis are terrific in that movie, too. Yeah, I think. Jeff Goldblum was just wonderful. And he was a great guy to work with. Yeah, he was a real nice guy. Yeah, anyway, so I did prosthetic stuff on that, and I also did some early storyboards before they picked Goldblum or anybody else to play the lead. Those storyboards ended up on the Toronto Film Festival International Tour. Very cool. And the storyboards were such that uh, the one scene in there, Mel Brooks, who was the executive producer on this, because this is a Brooks film production. So Mel Brooks looks at that particular storyboard and the description in the, in the script that goes with it, and he said, no. He said, we can't do that. He said, if you have the character Jeff Goldblum do this, the audience is no longer going to have any whatsoever sympathy for him. In other words, whatever's going to happen to him, they're going to figure... Do it. Do it quick. Do it now, you know, because of this scene where he basically grabs a, uh, he's pretty much in his fly persona at this point in the story, and he grabs this homeless woman who's rummaging in a dumpster. He grabs her, throws her down on the ground, and spews fly enzyme on her face, and it dissolves, and he sucks the, fl the dissolving flesh off of her face. Brutal. <laughs> Listen to your laugh, your evil laugh, Bill Stoneham. Yes, my evil laugh. And Mel Brooks goes, "No, I don't think we're going to put that in." <laughs> great idea, though. Yeah, I didn't write it. I yeah. just drew it. Yeah, it was a great project to work on. We got, yeah. we had a medical dictionary, huge thing. I guess it's more of an encyclopedia than a dictionary of disease. So it's got all the pictures of all the cancers and viruses, flesh eating, you know, all this stuff. And that's where we came up with a lot of the look for what Jeff Goldblum went through. You know, I saw it again a couple of years ago, and it still it still holds. I mean, it's, oh, it's yeah. a solid movie. It's, yeah, yeah, the, the, the writing is wonderful. Yeah, good stuff. His, 
his speech about the insect politics is just oh <laughs> yeah i love the idea of insect politics so, yeah you know, me too. too so <laughs> Just to get back in terms of your career um, chronology, you were working on various things, and you ended up moving into LucasArts Entertainment by the early 90s, and you then were becoming kind of a a computer artist for the next multiple 10 years or so, right? Tell us a little bit about all of the work you did there. Give us an overview. Well, I started out out in in, uh, the computer game industry at Sierra Online. And that was in 1989, I think. So I started there in 89 and worked on some Space Quest games. Now, you understand that the computer graphics at this time had just gone through a revolution. They had gone from 16 color to 256 color. And 256 color meant that pretty much as far as the human eye was concerned, you had a full spectrum of of color image capability. Now, these were only 320 by 240 pixel-sized images, which if you really think about that and zoom in on a 240 by 320, you're going to see that these pixels are about the size of postage stamps. So this is what your art is made of, is, is pixels, of pretty big pixels, not fine resolution. doesn't have the capability of doing a lot of fine detail, right? And it's all two-dimensional, side-scrolling kinds of games where your character is, you know, kind of walking sideways you know, from point A to point B and kind of at an angle, that kind of thing, because there wasn't any, you know, there were no sophisticated game engines yet. This was all, basically, this was just uh, just DOS-generated stuff. So that anyway, that was how I started in the computer game stuff. I worked there for about eight months, got my chops in the software. I, I did that for a while, for those uh, eight months or so, and then moved back to Mendocino. So I'm sitting up there at the, the, the house on Lansing right across from the Chevron station in the water tower there, and that's my studio. You know, set up my little PC, my primitive PC, but it was able to generate a color image, so I did my artwork for Karen, and and then I had sent my portfolio into Lucas, because they had a new division. It was called Lucasfilm Games, which would later become LucasArts Entertainment Company, but at the time was still called Lucasfilm Games, because it was openly part of Lucas, the film part of it. They were going to start up a project of doing uh, Young Indiana Jones. They were doing a movie young or a TV series called Young Indiana Jones, and they wanted a corresponding game set to go with it. So they hired me in 92 to work on that, and we put together some a really, I thought, solid story. Dark Horse Comics picked it up. They did a whole series on it. But the European companies that would market and, and distribute this game in Europe couldn't. Because the Germans were upset that we had, we were reanimating Hitler. (laughs) 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 I tried to point out, look, we reanimate him for like 15 seconds and then he's destroyed by Indiana Jones. I mean, it was, you know, this is like, so what? You know, I mean, you bring him up, pop him up, it's like whack-a-mole, you know, pop, there's Hitler and then bam, he's gone. Whack-a-fuhrer. Yeah, whack of fear. <laughs> but the story was a great story. I mean, we came up with it, and I and I was one of the writers on it and cool. designer. Yeah, it was called Iron Phoenix. Iron Phoenix. And it, was about, it was about the uh, Nazis uh, acquiring the Philosopher's Stone and using it to reanimate Hitler's ashes into the Fuhrer. 
So it's about gathering the pieces. Of course, it's always about gathering the pieces, right? It's always there's always the MacGuffin of whatever the hell this thing is, the object of desire. But you had to gather all those pieces together, and then you had an active operating philosopher's stone, which would project, you know, this energy, and bingo, there he'd be. Well, you know, I recall sitting around talking with you a number of times, where you and I would talk about how much fun robots were, how much fun monsters were, and how you could have a good time making fun of Nazis. And with those three things, you can build all kinds of computer games, comic books, movies, etc. So there you are. You're just keeping on track, Bill. Yeah, well, you know, they were always a good... They worked as as bad guys. Sure. Which Lucas... um, A lot of the um, Star Wars stuff was the result of hiring military designers. One of the guys, he worked uh, at Paramount for many years uh, after Lucas during the uh, Star Wars movies. And his background was working at uh, a tank factory in the, on the peninsula. He was a designer. So he had all these mechanical engineering concepts. And that's what went into the walkers and all of those, all of those machines in Star Wars. Yeah. was good, solid engineering yeah. and design. How long did you stay involved with ILM and other companies doing uh, game design, etc., on the computer? I did that from 92 until uh, I retired in 07. 07. So 15 solid years, you're moving the mouse around and you're building yeah, all kinds of yeah. stuff on a screen and in a yeah. hard drive. Now, in 03, when I moved to San Francisco, back to the Bay Area from Washington State, where I was working at Cyan, they're, they're the people who did Mist. And that's where I met Patty. So anyway, I moved back from Spokane to back to the Bay Area and worked at uh, a, little, a little company uh, that was bought up by Boss Games. And then ended up at, I ended up working at Crystal Dynamics that did uh, Tomb Raider. So the last games I worked on were Tomb Raider games. But in o- anyway, in 03, when I first moved back to the Bay Area, I got a commission to do a sequel to The Hands Resistant. Oh, and yeah. That was me picking up my paintbrush after 10 years. So, I mean, I had painted it all for 10 years. All I'd been doing was digital. So literally, no painting with a brush for like 10 years. Right. I mean, when you came home from work, you're like, well, I'm did, spent. I, did, I, I just actually, want a hot did, dog or whatever. I, <laughs> <laughs> I did sculpt. I did a lot of sculpting and uh, mostly just heads. But it was mostly, it was mostly uh, digital. Because three, 3D soft, software... I mean, I went from the from the DOS typed in instru- instruction level of 3D software to the mouse and stylus level of software, where you could spend hours, Doug, just spinning objects in, th- in three-dimensional space, you know, and building things in three-dimensional space, and lighting things, and creating whole worlds and environments and cities and people and objects. I mean, with that kind of ability, you. Why would you bother with anything else? Yeah. You know, you're so into it. You can create whatever you desire right there. Yeah, would you say that going from that world and then back into painting, what are some of the things that you kind of maybe took in, back into painting when you went back to work as a painter? Oh, well, a sense of three-dimensional space, for one thing. I mean, a real powerful sense of three-dimensional space. So when I imagine something in my mind's eye, I can see it three-dimensional. It's not just a flat photo- photographic image. And, it, it, and a sense of lighting. And I also use, I have a huge, huge archive of three-dimensional stuff that I've generated over the years. I mean, I've got Star Wars stuff. 
that we could plug into a 3D printer and, and uh, have spaceships or whatever we wanted out of there. Yeah. And um, so having that access to that stuff, I've created environments that I use in painting. You know, a set, basically. You know, it's got the lighting, it's got the space, it's got the three dimensions, it's got the perspective, all of those things. So it's a very handy tool for that. Now, you've been back, you moved back to Washington. That's Vashon Island. Actually, we live on Maury Island. Maury Island. If you do, if you do Google the Earth, you can see the two islands, and they're connected by a very uh, small isthmus. We're on our own, and then we, then we have to fend for ourselves and, and raid the shore across the, across the sound from us, going to Seattle at night, you know, and yeah. do our raiding and then get back on our ship. And you have a studio. And, and no, we're about, we're about um, 25 minutes, 35 minutes by ferry from Seattle. Tell us about your studio, etc. You and Patty, you both have studios? or Yeah, Patty's studio is in the up, upstairs of the house. She's a graphic and, artist, just to mention for... Well, she's doing, she's doing a lot of watercolor. That's, that's her passion these days. Um, and she's quite good at it. And then my space is a, what was a two-car garage, which I remodeled into a studio. Now, you're talking to us right now from the studio, and we have some yeah. of your paintings behind you, stuff you're working on, and you've continued to produce, you've continued to get work. Are, are some of your stuff at galleries all over the world? You mentioned this guy in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah. And does the Fine Garden Gallery have any of your stuff anymore? Or? Yeah, Fine Garden and Oppenheimer. Oh. Combined family name there. Um, they have a collection of my work, so they've got probably. I'm guessing they probably have at least 45, 50 canvases, and they're in a warehouse. They're not displaying them anywhere. And um, interestingly enough, I've, the uh, guy making the documentary film, Greg Gibbs, he actually contacted Feingarten and had, had them show him a, a, a lot of the collection of stuff, a lot of the paintings from the 70s. So he's, uh, you know, that'll probably be in his film whenever he gets that finished. <laughs> right. So this and would be a documentary about the, the creations of Bill Stoneham. The, right. But it's initially, the impetus for making it is from the hands resistant phenomena. Right. The painting and the phenomena of people freaking out about it. You know, this just goes to show, if you do one thing that's spooky in your life, you're bound to get some fans eventually. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. How many people remember the rest of Edward Munch's work? That's right. The screen. <laughs> if if he had done the whimper, it never would have gone anywhere. You know, Bill, this is it's a fascinating talking to you because it's interesting as much as anybody we've talked to, we try to talk we're trying to interview artists and find out about their careers and lives and the kind of stuff they've done. You've been an artist your whole life. And I think that that's a fascinating thing. At various points you've made a solid living, at other and in fact done well. At other points you've, you know, had the starving artist thing and managed to piece together things, but underneath it all, you've always been an artist. And I that's an extraordinary thing. It really is. So I congratulate you on that. <laughs> well, you've been an artist your whole life too, pretty much. I mean, that's that's who we are. That's and, right. You know, I mean, Diego Rivera said to famously to Frida in that in the certainly in the movie version with uh, uh, Salma, Salma Hayek and um, yes, Alfred, Hayek Molina. Playing, Alfred playing. Molina. Yeah, Alfred Molina. Yeah, Molina says to you know she says Diego, I want an honest answer from you. Is this is my work any good? Should I should I keep painting? Is it any good? And he, 
And he looks and he says, your work is very good. He says, I can't paint like this. But he said, it's not a question of whether it's good or not. You're an artist. You're a painter. He says, you paint because you have to paint. You have to create. Once you've got that, once that's in you and you wake up with it every day, as a child even, you go, what, what can I imagine today? What can I create today? I used to wake up from dreams when I was probably eight, nine years old, holding my hand closed because I knew that I was holding the hand of the person I had just met in the dream. And I expected to see them in bed with me when I woke up. <laughs> you have been a thoroughly interesting man to talk to. I've always loved talking with you. And when I, when I contacted you about doing the interview and we had our first FaceTime talk, the great thing about you, Bill, is I said, you know, Bill, it seems like I just talked to you two weeks ago. And I really like that. And I hope that, I hope that we're able to continue talking here and there. I have a, I'd like to visit, is it Vashon Island? Is that how you say it? Yeah. Yeah. We're on Maury Island, but Vashon is the uh, designated postal uh, address. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I just want to say thanks a bunch. When we stop recording, I'll give you a couple of other things. But okay. I want to say thank you very much for Bill for giving Snap Sessions a shot at getting to talk to you. I know we had to beat the door down with all the other people who want to talk about the hands resist them, etc. <laughs> well, that was covered pretty thoroughly by uh, the other uh, podcast. It was. It's actually a fascinating interview. Anyway, I wish you all the best, and um, we'll talk as soon as I stop the recording, okay? Thank you very much, Bill Stoneham. You're most welcome, Doug. Thanks to our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown. And thanks to our jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krause. Thanks to our Snap Sessions interview subject, artist Bill Stoneham. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Scour magazines. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. <laughs>